a lot of people thinking of marketing as manipulative, but the fact of the matter is, it's really anti-manipulative. You can never make anybody want something they don't already want. You can just show them a better way to get to what they want. This is Chris Reynolds and welcome to the Entrepreneur House podcast. The Entrepreneur House is a business accelerator for six and seven figure entrepreneurs creating events and retreats all over the world. Picture yourself spending four weeks with other high level entrepreneurs in the northern mountains of Thailand this coming October and November 2017. It will be full of masterminds, workshops, advisors, like-minded entrepreneurs, and of course, some fun adventure. If you're ready to take your business to the next level with other successful entrepreneurs, be sure to apply at theentrepreneurhouse.com. On today's show, we have the serial entrepreneur and co-founder of three online magazines, Jeremy Hendon, on our show. Jeremy has built multiple six-figure businesses, is an expert at narrative and storytelling, and a brilliant mind to learn from. Today, we get to hear the story behind the man. We chat about Jeremy's success mentality and the first three businesses he built, selling two of them in just a few short years. Towards the latter part of the show, Jeremy dives deep into narrative and the importance of using narrative in business. He divulges into the psychology behind the stories that we have as people and how you can apply this to your business to attract more clients or customers. It's a brilliant podcast and one I really enjoyed. And without further ado, let's welcome Jeremy Hendon to the show. Welcome, Jeremy, to the podcast. How are you today? Great. Doing well. Thank you for coming on the show, my friend. And we want to get behind the mind of Jeremy Hendon and start out by learning a little bit about you and how you became the entrepreneur that you are today. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. So where do you want to start? I mean, we, there, there are a ton of places we could start. And I, I tend to start somewhere different almost every time because I, <laughs> I like telling. Well, honestly, we'll talk about this, but I like telling different stories. It's, it's just kind of fun and interesting. So uh, what part of it would you like to start with? Let's start off on, on your professional careers. I knew you were an attorney back in the States yeah. and decided to move on and become an entrepreneur after that. So let's start there. Yeah, that was a, um, that was a decision that I probably started making about three months into working as an attorney because I was, I was, I was very bored. <laughs> and um, <laughs> ironically, and I, I say this, and, uh, but it's very true. Like I had it better than almost anybody I knew. I worked with amazing people. You know, the partners and associates I worked with and for, they were, they were super, super nice. As far as the quality of work goes, I was getting, even from the first day I was in law firms, very, very high quality work. My hours, although occasionally bad, were generally very good. So I had a very good, I was just honestly bored. I never, I never found it that interesting. Um, and my background before that is largely in, in academia. I was actually doing, but didn't finish my PhD before that. Um, and so I've always, I always found that a little more fascinating. I, I quit it for a variety of reasons because I, I guess, wasn't quite fascinated enough with it. But, but yeah, I, uh, I was an attorney for six and a half years and, uh, and then decided I wanted to do something different. And um, so my wife and I, I quit first and then my wife quit. She was also an attorney. I was an attorney for about six and a half years. She was an attorney for just over three, I think. Um, and then uh, we quit. And we actually started a business about a year, no, actually just about three months before I quit. So, so that's how we started. What was your first business you started, Jeremy? Yeah, so we started a food manufacturing business. We, <laughs> our, our initial idea was to manufacture breakfast foods for diabetics. Mm -hmm. um, so my father-in-law, my wife's dad, is diabetic. My mom's pre-diabetic. And you know, I had always been overweight my whole life. And so I had kind of already been for a long time in the low-carb movement. And by that time and this was late 2011, I'd been in the paleo world for a while, not in any entrepreneurial sense, but I'd, I'd been paleo probably for at least five or six years by that point. 
uh, and I'd been low carb for longer and um, mostly just for, for weight loss and, and health reasons. Uh, and so we saw, a, we saw a big need in the market or something that we felt like was a need for for people who either were diabetic, pre-diabetic, or had other insulin sensitivity issues. And so we developed a breakfast cereal um, that was completely paleo, completely low carb, that didn't spike people's blood sugar. Uh, and we started making We started making it first ourselves in a commercial kitchen. We got licensed and everything, but we would go in for eight or 16-hour shifts, uh, you know, make it, package it, label it, uh, sell it online or to uh, stores, um, you know, wholesale. And then we would uh, ship it out either to the stores or, or more often, I think 90, 95% of our sales were actually direct to consumer. Um, and so we, we did that for a while. And yeah, that, that's kind of how we started. Uh, actually, long story short, that company, we had a very cult following for the cereal itself among diabetics. It was really it, one of the things that first kind of blew us away is we, you know, we'd be getting orders. We weren't getting a ton of orders. I mean, we were making money and everything. And um, we'd get orders, and all of a sudden we noticed that we'd be getting, you know, 10, 20, 30 different orders from the same town, or from the same zip code. And <laughs> it was, it really boggled our mind. We're like, how is this happening? And then we realized that just in those locations, we had one or two evangelicals who were just telling everybody about <laughs> how great the cereal was. And, you know, they had lots of friends who were either diabetic or, you know, had other health issues or who were also low carb for weight loss or something. And so it would spread quickly. Uh, and then we came out with a second product that was a, it wasn't quite as low carb because it had raisins in it, so it wasn't for diabetics. We did that intentionally, though, because the marketing was getting hard. The FDA has a lot of regulations around um not just advertising or packaging, but really saying anything about any sort of health condition. Right. So we were having a hard time really targeting it down towards diabetics. So we came out with a second product that became much, much more popular. Uh, it was a granola, it had some raisins in it. It's much more popular partially because it tasted better. Um, but that one, <laughs> that one became much more popular. We got that one in a lot more stores. We actually, um, through the connection to a couple of our friends, got national TV exposure, which if you, um, if you want a bittersweet story, uh, very quickly that this was this was early 2013 we had actually we'd been running the company for about 17 18 months and it was doing well but we'd also started two magazines by this point and they were doing really well oh not really really well but they were doing better and we um <laughs> we were thinking off and on every month or so about just kind of wrapping up the food business and focusing on the magazines and some of the online marketing and other and the books we were writing and things because we felt like we were better at that and more geared for it. And in January, I think it was January, maybe early February of 2013, two of our friends, Jason and Mira Carlton, um, really, really, really awesome couple, and they they're really good at getting a lot of TV publicity. They were always on various morning shows for the books that they were writing and things. And he's a doctor and they do a lot of nutrition stuff and they're just, they're very good. They're very personable on TV. And they asked us like, Oh, Jeremy Lewis, do you want us, you know, we really like your cereal. Do you want us to uh, take it on TV? And we're like, sure. Sounds great. And so they're like, okay, mail us a couple bags to our hotel in New York where we're staying. Cause, you know, they're filming in New York and uh, they told us the date they were going on and everything. And so they were going on on a Sunday morning on Fox and friends, which is a nationally syndicated uh, morning TV show that airs. I, you know, I've never watched it, honestly, but mm -hmm. I think it's like 6.30 or 7 in the morning or so. It's one of those early morning shows, but but hugely popular. And we didn't know. I didn't, I didn't know anything about the show, but I also didn't know anything about television exposure. And so we go 
skiing on Saturday or snowboarding mm-hmm. and we get back and we're sleeping in and Louise gets up about 10 a.m. on Sunday morning. She's like, oh my God, Jeremy, you got to get up. So <laughs> so literally what had happened, they'd gone on and they had themselves like a 30-second segment, you know, fairly short segment. That's how these segments are on these morning shows. And our they had featured our cereal for about five seconds as a comparison to a typical breakfast cereal and why it was healthier and what people should be looking for in their foods, which kind of jived with what they were talking about in their newest book. And they had featured our cereal versus another one and another breakfast food. They had done a similar comparison. So our, our cereal had gotten maybe five, seven seconds of TV time. I still have the video on my computer, and it's really short. But about – and I could get the numbers wrong. I don't remember. I, you know, I don't check this anymore. But something about like 20,000, 25,000 people had tried to order our cereal. <laughs> and we – we only had about a thousand bags of it. Mm-hmm. I had somehow made a mistake of like in the back end of our inventory putting that we had about 2,500 bags. We sold about 2,500 bags. We had another 10 to 15,000 people emailing us trying, you know, wanting to buy. Louise was still working as a lawyer at this point. We literally had to for the next week because I had oversold 1,500 bags. For the next week, we went in for I think two different 16-hour shifts, making the cereal, bagging it, labeling it, <laughs> sending it out. And in the next seven days, we got a total of maybe 10 to 15 hours of sleep just doing this. And Louise took most of the whole week off of her job that week to to do it. We literally didn't sell a bag for I think six weeks after that because we couldn't get any more kitchen time we didn't have any more to sell so as much publicity as we got we couldn't even take advantage of it because we <laughs> you know we just weren't ready for it which is it's bittersweet you know looking back it it's uh it's one of those things we kind of laugh about and it's funny because man it was painful <laughs> at the time but but now i'm um, you know it, you know it taught us what the kind of publicity, uh, publicity can do. It taught me a lot more about systems. I mean, you talked some about automation, and Louise has always been big on automation because she never wanted that to happen again. So <laughs> it's uh, it's one of those situations. But yeah, that, that's kind of the backstory of our of our cereal. So Jimmy, I'd like to learn more about the magazines that you started. You started those when you were actually building um, your first business, and and yeah. what were those magazines? Yeah, so one was called Pay the Living, and the other was called Healthy Recipes. Uh, you can actually still go out and find them. We don't own them anymore. We sold them to somebody uh, summer of 2015, but um, they're they're still available both on iOS and Google Play and I think the Amazon App Store. Um, and so you can go find them. They were they were digital magazines. We never did print. Um, a lot of people kind of were either requesting print or pushing us to go print, but we didn't really want to. It's just it's such a hassle to do it. So mm-hmm. we started those. Those are very much in the the same health niches that we were interested in. Uh, you know, real food, gluten-free, um, things like low-carb. Uh, and so we did that, started those. Uh, it was all, um, it was effectively syndicated content. Of, um, it's it's kind of the wrong word because we weren't just straight syndicating it. Right. Um, we had, you know, we built up a whole team and we had people who would write a little bit of it, but mostly they would go out and find the best content that had already been published in books, uh, largely on the web, ask people for permission, and then we would repackage it. We would um, we'd often cut it and edit it a little bit, but we would repackage it also in terms of redesigning it, making it look better, making it more easily accessible, put it in the magazine. And, you know, we, we were getting like a 98% response rate from people who were requesting to do it because it was just more exposure for them. Um, and, yeah, we started that and grew those for a while uh, and then, you know, decided that we wanted to move on from that too. So, How long did you have those magazines before you sold them? The first one went live in, on August 1st, 2012. And I think we 
finalize the sale in mid-July of 2015, although the sale was really finalized in early March of 2015. So I, literally, I had to get Apple approval because they have subscriptions, and so we had to transfer pretty much the whole account. That's a long story that's not very interesting to go into, but it took me four, four and a half months of, <laughs> you know, after we signed the contract uh, and after we had the money in escrow to actually get them transferred, which was, was not exciting and not, not a, a pleasing scenario. But yeah, so we held them for I don't know, two and a half years or almost three years until the final sale. So at this point, you'd been an entrepreneur for j just a few years and you already started. And did you sell your first business? We did not. We wound it down. Okay. So you started out of three businesses, you started and sold two of them and had relatively success with the first business. And and I'm going to ask you, you were a trained attorney, so you weren't a trained businessman or entrepreneur. And so I'm kind of curious, what were some key attributes to that rapid success for those three businesses? Um, my wife. Uh, <laughs> a good partner uh, yeah yeah no seriously i mean um who is it uh what's the fa really famous incubator i can't even think of the name of the incubator or his name but um you know his main role is that you you have to have a, a co-founder right because uh, he doesn't think anybody can really grow anything big alone um i can't believe i'm blanking but anyway um you know i always you know i like coming up with clever things to say that sound good and i think most people do but realistically what made them successful is we just did them. Um, and I, you know, part of it's luck. People like to think it's all, um, you know, how good you are at these things. And I'm not saying, you know, everything is all luck or all random. I don't think it is, but at the same time, you know, it, it was good timing for us. The, the cereal was a good timing. Cereal was actually a little bit too early. Um, I think we would have done better if we'd started a couple years later. Um, because people weren't buying quite as much food online at that point, and we were a little ahead of the curve. And we're, in terms of uh, what we we're doing now, we see a lot more similar food companies that have done better, not just because of the timing. I mean, they, they did them better too. But um, so some of it was timing, some of it was luck, a lot of it was just doing it. Um, you know, we've been successful at everything we've done, we've grown at, you know, everything fairly large. Um, and it's just because we just kind of keep going and, you know, most of it doesn't work. Like so many things we try don't work or don't turn out well. Um, but, you know, we just keep finding ways to make it work. And I'd like there to be a sexier, better answer. And <laughs> we can talk about some of the other sexy and more interesting things like you and I discussed before we jumped on the podcast. But, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, realistically, it's it's just doing it. It's, you know, we just we started the magazines. We put them out there. We went out and did the content. We went out and figured out a way to promote them. And, you know, the way we promoted the magazines, like I'll tell you, because this is one of our biggest success points, but, you know, and, and I'm sure it's applicable to a lot of different industries, but the fact that we were a magazine rather than just bloggers or something, and what we did is we set up, because we were charging for the magazine, we're charging, I don't know, like $20 a year for subscription, uh, kind of a normal magazine charge, um, but we, since we were all digital, we could give away free three-month subscriptions without it costing us anything. Mm -hmm. And some of those people would convert, some wouldn't. But so we went out, every single contributor that we got to contribute, either recipes or articles or any other content to the magazine, we were pretty successful at getting most of them to also um, tell all of their fans and their list and everybody else that, hey, you know, we set up uh, special pages for each contributor and said, hey, here's a free three-month um, subscription just for readers of 
you know, X blog or of, of X person, you know, X influencer, and they would send people to that page. And so um, that, that also in turn allowed our website, which we kept after the sale because we put a lot of content. We wanted to focus on that and the other, the books and things we're selling through there. And um, we're still working on that. But um, we, um, it, it allowed our website to rank really highly because we got a lot of backlinks from a lot of relevant and fairly high authority sites in our niche. Uh, in addition to getting you know a lot more publicity and to pushing a lot more traffic to the app store, which also increased our app store rankings because that was where we we're getting a lot of the traffic and sales was through the Apple App Store. Obviously, we did everything that you would think most people who have an app on the App Store would do, because the magazines were predominantly apps, and that is you know we we kept refining the the keywords and everything, the titles to make sure they were getting found for the best keywords. Um, I, you know, I kept testing different pop-ups and different opt-ins as soon as you got to the magazine to try to increase the number of subscriptions that we got as soon as you signed up. I uh, did various things with push notifications, trying to get people back to the app. I mean, also, you know, uh, part of the reason I'm saying all of these different things is because it's, it's, I feel like as many people as I know who are successful at any one of these things, uh, at building any sort of business, it's, you know, they'll often hone in on one thing, but it's rarely one thing. It's usually... Just that they did a bunch of different stuff, and they were smart about it and systematic about it, and you know, tracked things and 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 got help from people and suggestions and read and learned and and watched what was working. But at the same time, it's just they they kept doing things and kept doing it until it worked. So that's that's kind of long answer. Now, Jeremy, you mentioned something that really stood out to me that I don't think most entrepreneurs have this core belief. And I think the way you, that you said this uh, makes me believe that it's actually a true core belief for you and, and your wife is you said so casually and so confidently that we've always been successful at everything we've done. So I want to ask you, where does that belief come from? Um, I, uh, my life's been pretty easy. My life's been pretty <laughs> <laughs> lucky. Um, yeah, yeah. Where does that come from? Um, I, you know, if, I, if I'm being honest, I don't always believe it. Um, yeah, I, I believe it most of the time. But there are times when I feel like the exact opposite. Um, I don't know where it comes from. Uh, I'm sure it comes from somewhere. But, that, you know, it's an interesting question to ask where belief comes from. Because if we believe that beliefs come from somewhere, then... We might also believe that you you can't actually instill them without getting the right set of circumstances, right? Which which I potentially believe. Um, but anyway, that's that's kind of a tangent. We won't go down that road. Um, yeah, I guess I don't I don't really have a good answer for where that comes from. Okay, um, no, it, it inspired me to hear you say that because me personally, I would say I'm decently successful, but I don't feel like I, I could say that confidently the way that you said that because I don't believe that I've always been successful I've been a failure a lot of times and so <laughs> and so I'm just kind of curious yeah because I study these right. neurological programs that go in, into our mind and and they a lot of times they come from childhood so I was wondering right, if right. there was a memory or a time or just something that happened within your life that created that so yeah, you know I well, you know, I joked, and I studied. I actually do study this stuff a lot too. Um, mm -hmm. I joked how I had a very easy and good life, and mm -hmm. I, I actually wasn't kidding. I mean, my life has been, you know, look. There, obviously, like anybody, have had pains or whatever things gone wrong, but uh, in general, my life has been very, very good. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think there was one incident. I'm sure I could point to a lot, but I don't think any one of them was defining. I was, um, I was very smart in the way 
in school that the schools and people were looking for, right? So school was always incredibly easy for me and always got a lot of praise. Um, when I was young, I was, I was never a super athlete or anything, but I was always very good at learning athletics. So I was always, um, you know, pretty good pretty quickly at these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when I think back over my life, and in and, and, and the business context, too, like even when I, when I went to law school, law school is super easy for me. Grad school is very easy for me. Becoming a lawyer, immediately everybody really liked, like all my clients always love me because I can speak fairly, I don't want to say well, I speak in the way that people expect people in that field to speak. Um, and so it seems familiar, it seems calming and reassuring or, or whatever you want to say about it. But all of these things that are just happenstance and circumstance of who who I, not just who I am, but, you know, my circumstances and my life growing up have kind of conspired to make a lot of my life very easy. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, because it's been that way, I have, I've always been praised a lot. Not by everybody. I mean, I, again, there's times <laughs> in my life where people have definitely criticized me. But my point is, I've, I, I think all through my childhood and even into my adult life, I've always, I've always excelled at most things I've done. And so I've gotten a lot of praise, and so I've always felt successful. Mm-hmm. Now, that's that said, and I think this is is an interesting topic to talk about, especially on this particular subject, and that is the businesses I've started. I have felt less successful over the past five years than at any time in my life. Interesting. So even though even though I casually say we've everything we've done has been successful, and it's true, and I believe it, I've felt less successful, and it's uh, yes, yeah, definitely been a I don't want to say a problem. I've made it into a problem at times, this feeling of not feeling successful. I haven't always been as happy as an entrepreneur for this reason because I don't feel like I've excelled as much as I felt like I did in the rest of my life. So, mm-hmm. so Jeremy, how many businesses have you guys been through at this point? Uh, it, it, it really depends on how you count them. I'd say we're on our third. <laughs> okay. Third. Yeah. Third. I would count. I would count. The, I would count the two magazines as one. I mean, okay. they were they were very similar, even though they were two different magazines, and we sold them to the same person. And yeah, so like the food business, the magazines, and now uh, the other health stuff that we're doing, kind of online. Gotcha. Okay, so I want to move into I'm talking a bit about narrative, and I know you're coaching and you're speaking and you're you're doing a lot of teaching these days. And so one thing that I found really interesting about you is the way that you see narrative and use that and teach others to connect with their customers through their stories and their myths. So I'm curious if you could kind of um, give us a few minutes about your beliefs and your teachings through uh, narratives and stories and myths. Yeah, do you mind if I ask you first why, uh, what, what draws you to being interested in that particular aspect in, in narrative and myth? Well, connecting with customers and people in general is something that I really enjoy doing. So that one, two, narrative is great. I've studied narrative a little bit more and more. And we had somebody that stayed in an entrepreneur house that wrote a book on narrative. And it really kind of just intrigued me. And also um, learning more and more about how people define themselves and use their stories and quote-unquote myths would be like a word that was used out of the book Sapiens and how humanity has really evolved by stories and myths and how important it is in a business to create an incredibly clear narrative and story to connect with other 
either entrepreneurs or customers or clients. So I right. just I just find it fascinating. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean that I, I was partially just wondering for that reason because I, I always like to hear what aspect of it people are interested in. Um, you know, a lot of as you well know, I mean, you've read about this, you've talked to people like the guy who wrote the book, but obviously you've read a lot more. Um, you know, people have been talking about story and myth forever. Um, obviously, Joseph Campbell was the, the guy who talked about myth more than anybody. And it, I still go back and reread his stuff. And it's kind of, I, it's amazing that anybody can know as much about myth as he did. <laughs> I mean, the, the man, it, it seems like, it's not true, but it seems like the man knew every myth that had ever been spoken <laughs> in the world. It, you know, literally from myths from sub-Saharan African tribes to Papua New Guinea to Native American tribes to, um, you know, Greek myths to whatever, you know, Nordic myths. I mean, it seemed like he, he could just reference them off the top of his head. And if you listen to some of his audio interviews, he does. It's not just like he wrote them down. He literally knows them so well. It's <laughs> kind of hard to keep up because the, the names get so confusing. Uh, so it's the kind of thing that we've been talking about forever. And, and in the business sense, when you go back into a lot of the great copywriters, whether, you know, Gene Schwartz or Claude Hopkins or the people who are kind of known as the, the greats of copywriting from the past 150, 200 years, uh, they they all talk about story and everything, so it's not something that's been hidden or that nobody has discussed at all. I am I'm interested in it. Um, it it's sometimes hard for me to say. I, I'm interested in it first of all, more from a personal perspective. Mm -hmm. So although I talk about it a lot from a marketing perspective, and I use it a lot in my own business, or if I'm speaking or consulting or coaching or something, then, you know, often I'll start there because that's, well, it, we'll get <laughs> we'll get into exactly how I think it's used in marketing, but I use it that way in marketing for that exact reason because that's where, you know, that's what people mainly want at first. But I'm actually interested in it, first of all, from a from a personal point of view. I'm interested in the stories we tell about ourselves, but I'm, I'm also interested in the stories that we tell about others and the stories that we tell about everything. Uh, the stories we tell, and I'm not going to get too deep into this because I, I think it's a rabbit hole that wouldn't necessarily benefit your listeners to listen to right now, but <laughs> I'm interested in the stories that we tell about science, the stories that we tell about truth, um, and the ways that these are contextual stories. And I got very into this even in middle school when I was reading a lot of philosophy, a lot of uh, continental philosophy, Foucault, Derrida. Um, and so that was kind of my introduction into it. And they don't talk about stories as much, although they, they talk, you know, Foucault himself talks about a lot of narrative. So I've always been interested in a very philo philosophical perspective. And then um, I want to say around five years ago, I started getting into personal development. And unlike a lot of people, I'd never really been exposed to any of it. And I did it effectively hardcore for three years. <laughs> in fact, I, I did more of, more of that than almost anything else. And so I went through a lot of programs, a lot of kind of large group awareness training of, of the kinds that you're familiar with. I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with. Did uh, different types of therapy with uh, Reiki Qigong guy who's amazing and, and some other people. And the thing that kept coming back is that, and it kept coming back to me on this philosophical level too because that was the way I'd studied it when I was younger but is that everything that we know about ourselves everything we think about ourselves but also everything we think about the world is a narrative that and that we tell in a particular way it's a narrative that has certain facts that we and I don't you know I don't want to get into the whole alternative facts thing since we're in the midst of of, of a new world order right now but um you know everything that we talk about is told in a certain way so for instance and this is one example I really, really have always loved. And I got this actually from one of the, the trainings that I did uh, four or five years ago. 
But we tell stories not just about ourselves all the time. We tell stories about the people around us. So, for instance, you know, you're in Brazil right now recording this, right? Right. And if you went out, let's say, you know, one of your good friends is in Kansas City <laughs> from high school or whatever, and you say, hey, you call them up and say, hey, I, you know, I just had this idea. Why don't we go to Japan next week? Mm-hmm. Well, I don't, I don't know about you. I'm not trying to imply that you're doing this. But most people, you know, if, if I said, oh, why don't you call up your best friend and ask them if they'll go to Japan next week for a couple weeks with you, they would already be making up stories, narratives about what's going to happen, right? That person's you know, not going to have enough money or they say they don't have time or you know, make up some sort of excuse. And even just on a very surface level, the narrative that we start telling about other people in that way changes how we interact with them. Mm-hmm. In, that, in that instance, a lot of people probably wouldn't even ask, right? A lot of people probably wouldn't even call up their friend because they wouldn't want to make their friend feel bad for not having enough money or for not having the time off or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also changes the way that they interact with you. So even if you do ask, you probably ask in a way where they can already hear that you're making an excuse. So they're more, much more likely to to turn it down or actually make that sort of excuse, say, yeah, you know, uh, you know, my, my kid's got a dance recital next week, so I can't make it, or something like that. And I'm not saying that none of these are valid excuses. All I'm saying is that we we have these narratives going on both in our head and all around us all the time. And it's significant. It not just changes; it actually informs the way that we interact with the world, and informs the way that the world interacts with us. And I think of it first of all on this very personal basis, because when you do this, you're, you know, in that instance, I, I like that instance because it's it's an instance where it's easy for people to see, even if you haven't taken a, a spur of the moment trip to Japan, it's easy for people to see the effect that it can have on somebody else, right? Right. Because you're not empowering that person, right? You're not giving that person, like, especially if you don't ask them, you're not even giving them the chance to say yes. Yeah. But even if you then do ask them and you've got this narrative that, yeah, look, I know you're busy, but I just wanted to reach out to you just in case you had the time. Even if you phrase it like that, which is considered, you know, kind of polite and nice way to do it, you're still disempowering them from making that sort of choice. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are a couple alternatives. One alternative is just to do, have a, create a more empowering narrative um, that where you believe they're going to be capable of it. Uh, and the, the, the other alternative, which I won't get too much into because it's, I'm, I'm peculiar in this way. The other alternative is to have no story at all, which is incredibly hard, but I, I think is where in the end all creativity comes from and where all what we think of as inner peace comes from is to kind of either hear these stories and ignore them or to, to forget them in the first place. So, but point being is these these narratives really do change the way that we interact with the world and the world interacts with us. And so that's where I started. But as you mentioned, now that I do speaking, consulting, and things like that, and, and just run my own business, the most of my own businesses, I'm also incredibly fascinated with the way that companies approach this and the way that entrepreneurs approach this. Because if you look at the history of well, the history of business, especially over the past 20, 30 years, you, know, you can go read Harvard Business Review. They've actually had several special issues on you know, the power of story and the power of storytelling in business and communication. But you know what they always talk about? And they talk about, and I think this is true and good in a way, is they always talk about telling your story, being transparent and vulnerable with your story, where on a personal basis or on your company basis. And I think that's all great. And I think it needs to be done. But what we forget is that there's a whole other story of the customer, of the potential client, that we need to jump into. And some of the best copywriters in history, I mentioned this before we jumped on the call, Gary Halbert's famous for saying, you've got to enter the conversation that's already going on in somebody's head. So if you're a food company 
and let's say you're a health food company like the one I ran, you've got uh, a potential client out there. Let's say this potential client is a uh, 45-year-old woman who has a little bit of high blood sugar or high, I'm uh, sorry, high blood pressure, uh, and her insulin sensitivity is not great. You know, she's been to the doctor. She doesn't have severe health problems, but she's a little bit overweight. She wants to fix this. Well, what's the conversation that's going on in her head, right? Maybe she's got kids who are teenagers and she's worried about being able to keep up with them. Maybe she worries about that at night. Maybe it's not even her health she's really worried about, right? Maybe her husband is not interacting with her in the way that she wants him to interact with her anymore. Or maybe she thinks her kids don't respect her because she's been really tired lately because she doesn't have enough energy. Or, you know, there are a variety of things, right? And those are the conversations, those are the pains that your customers are potentially feeling, and those are the narratives that are already going on in their head. And this is, it's a very tried and true principle of copywriting and, and really good sales and marketing is that the place where you enter and the place where you get them is to show them that you understand, first of all, that pain. You understand what their dilemma is. You understand their pains potentially even better than they do. To some degree, you're articulating pains that are a little bit subconscious for them, that they're not necessarily willing to to talk about or that are not necessarily at the forefront of their mind. But then beyond that, and this is what doesn't get talked about nearly as much, is you need to take that narrative as a company or an entrepreneur and shape it so that you can empower them. Because a lot of times, let's just take this woman, this woman may not feel empowered at all. And that might be for a variety of reasons. Maybe she doesn't feel like she, you know, she feels like she has to, has had to sacrifice her career for her family, or maybe she feels like the people around her don't think she's very smart, or, you know, her husband doesn't feel she's very attractive, all sorts of things where she feels disempowered either by the situation or people around her or by herself. And so maybe because of all of that, and it sounds funny, but because of all of that, maybe she feels like, oh, she can't lose weight or she can't deal with these health problems or she's not going to have the energy to stick to any sort of diet or eat well. But so you can enter as a company or anybody selling anything really, and this even applies to you if you're selling yourself in a job interview, you can enter that conversation in the person's head at the point where they're at. You can show them that you understand the pain, their pain partially by using the words that they're using both in their head and when they're talking with their friends or any other time, the pains that they're worried about, the things that they go to bed thinking about. And then you can empower them to make better decisions, to make better choices, and to actually reach their goals more easily by manipulating and changing that story, massaging that story a little bit to say, hey, you know, you feel this way, you feel like you're disempowered because, you know, you haven't been able to progress in your job in the past six years or because you haven't been able to lose weight the past three diets you've tried, whatever it is, you feel disempowered. But hey, look, you know, you've been through so much, you know, you've raised these kids, you've dealt with these things, you've, you've helped out your parents when, when they got sick or you know, whatever else you can point to, and you can point to all sorts of things that will resonate and click with whoever your particular audience is, and then you can massage the narrative that's going on in their head to make them feel more empowered and also to lead them to a better outcome. And a lot of people think of marketing as manipulative, but the fact of the matter is, it's really anti-manipulative. You can never make anybody want something they don't already want. You can just show them a better way to get to what they want. So somebody who wants to lose weight, you just show them a better way to get uh, to get there. And sure, you can you can rip them off or, or fool them or whatever if you want to by giving them something that doesn't actually work, but by convincing them that it does. But but to a degree, all good marketing, as long as you've got a good product, is just about getting people to be empowered, to take make a better choice. And that all starts with that narrative, starting with what's in their head and then moving them and massaging them to a point where they feel more empowered, where they can make better choices with more informed information, but also with a better story about themselves and about their world.
<laughs> that was incredible, Jeremy. <laughs> that was great. You answered every question that came up in my mind. I want to ask you, do you think most entrepreneurs are good at narrative? No. I don't think most humans. I mean, it's, the funny thing is humans are naturally good at it to some degree, but uh-huh. we've lost it to some degree. And uh, I'm a huge technologist. I love I think the future is incredibly bright for what technology is going to do for us. I don't think that absolves us from recognizing that technology has done some bad things, uh-huh. and this is one of them. Um, you know, technology has made us not as good at connecting with other people in general, and part of the reason for that is it's made us not as good at listening to other stories and telling our own, um, because that you know humans are very oral, um, and we've been writing for a long time, but these, this type of oral storytelling just doesn't. It doesn't happen as much. You don't sit around dinner tables as much. You don't sit around mm-hmm. uh, just playing. And part of it's because we, you know, I mean, it started even with the agricultural revolution. We just didn't spend as much time doing it. But especially in the past hundred years, and especially in the past twenty years, right? We just, we're, we're busier. We're more inundated with information. We're more in, and so we don't spend the time connecting. We don't spend the time talking. Um, and I'm not saying I'm not trying to romanticize the past, but at this same point. I don't, I don't think most entrepreneurs are good at it because I think humans have gotten a little bit worse at it on average. So can you give some examples of some businesses or people that you know that the listeners could look to that are really good at their narrative and storytelling? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, there, there are a bunch of famous examples. Um, so, so first of all, let me, this isn't, well, it was a business, but if anybody's actually interested, go back and read the Boron Letters by Gary Halbert. Boron Letters? Sorry, Jeremy. Yeah, so Boron, B-O-R-O-N. Boron The Boron Letters, letters okay. yeah, by Gary Halbert. Um, and it, it's not exactly what you're asking for there in terms of a company that's great at doing, although he ran a lot of businesses. He's one of the most famous copywriters ever to live. And he's not always talking about narrative in those those letters, but he's he's weaving a narrative throughout them. And even even though they're dated, I mean, he was writing most of them in the 80s, they're some of the most interesting things you'll read because he was just so good at it. And he had a very unique voice. But what you'll see is that even if you're not his target audience, you can read those letters and really see how he was doing what I was talking about. And that is figuring out the conversation, the pain point that was already going on in people's heads and really entering it, telling a, then an engaging story and narrative and moving where people were at to a better point, which eventually he usually led them to buy something from him, like his newsletter or something. Um, so that's one place to start. You know, some of the classic ones are really good. Uh, you know, some of the classic Apple you know, if you go back and watch some of Steve Jobs, um, not keynotes, but, you know, his speeches that he gave every time Apple would announce a new product, mm-hmm. he was very, very good at this. He was very good at talking about, and it, it, it can be subtle in a lot of ways, but he was very good at talking about even the small pains and problems that people would be not facing with a with a phone or a smartphone, but, you know, be facing in their life with the issues they'd be dealing with and weaving that into the story, not just of the iPhone, but of, you know, how they could now do all of these better things and connect better with people and interact better with people. Mm-hmm. And he's just really, really good at that. And he's so good, in fact, at it. In fact, it's it, you have to watch it a few times to start seeing it because he's very subtle and he's not, he's not making it obvious. Like, Oh, I know what kind of pain you're in. Here's why we understand it. You know, here's how we're going to solve it. It's not like that. It's just kind of woven in and out of it. Um, so Apple's a really good example. Um, and then, you know, there are a lot, the reason I'm hesitating a little is because there are a lot of 
there are a lot of good ads that you could look at today. I mean, anything from like the old Spice Man, like the, I mean, the old Spice guy, you know, the one who's always in the towel. Uh, they <laughs> they do it very well. And um, the reason I even bring up that one is because they were one of the first big companies to really start, and this is what I think companies need to do more and more of, you know, we're in the age of digital media. We've been in it for a while, and everybody's talking about how fast things change, how they can't keep up with social media. Well, one of the ways that companies don't keep up with social media, big companies in particular, is they don't realize that their customer narrative is changing constantly. And mm -hmm. we could argue that there's, you know, there's some static parts of that customer narrative that stay the same underneath, but it's also, it's changing in a lot of important ways on an ongoing basis and being informed by, you know, not any one person, but being informed by a national narrative, whether it's politics or things that are happening in the world or just things that are going on, you know, the jobs, the economy, things like that. And so that narrative is always changing. It changes a lot faster because social mo media moves those kind of common myths and common narratives pretty quickly. And the Old Spice one, what they did that was interesting, and more companies have done this now, is they didn't just, you know, they took user suggestions and they took user interaction with their ads and with their YouTube videos and with their social media, and they then rewove those into their new ads, right? So in essence, what they're doing is they're co-creating the narrative, right? They're co-creating the narrative of Old Spice and the dude that's in their commercials, but they're also co-creating the narrative of their consumer, of their potential customer. And not a whole lot of companies are doing that well on a big scale right now. So, so that's another one I'd look at. Um, and and it, apart from ads, you know, there are companies that just do it well. Um, there, there are a couple I'm skimming over in my mind because they're, they're kind of on the, the fringe. <laughs> so actually some of the, if you, if you go and look at some of the, um, the Patriot websites, <laughs> Like, they they do it incredibly well. Like kind of like survivalist things. They oh yeah, alt right. I mean, they <laughs> some of those are amazing. Like if you go and subscribe, and one of my friends AJ uh, showed this to me a couple weeks ago. I hadn't subscribed. He had subscribed just to see this, but uh, he subscribed to the Blaze. I don't know if you know the Blaze, but it's yeah, Glenn yeah. Beck's yeah. website and everything. Yeah, and uh, and so you know, it's it's one of those websites that it's it's very emotional. It's very obviously very political, and there are these companies. Um, actually selling not food products but like help like digital diets and you know the kind of stuff that that i sell to a degree um i don't think it's as good as mine but they <laughs> unless they're selling right this like diet information and uh to, and even sometimes physical products like supplements and stuff and man the way that they tell the stories because uh, they're what they're doing is they're buying space in the newsletter that the blaze sends out and they're, they start off with the stories of like the conspiracies behind Hillary Clinton and the liberal machine and the liberal media and the whole, you know, George Soros and how, you know, this whole thing's backing it and the, mm -hmm. the new world order is kind of controlling things behind the scenes. And they'll talk and they'll keep going down. They'll talk about how it's controlling everything and every and they'll start to get into the, the consumer story by talking explicitly about like how it's affecting them and, you know, their jobs and moving jobs overseas and things and how food prices are going up and then they'll talk about how all the how it's controlling gmos and how it's controlling the food source and everything and they'll gradually move into the health aspects of it and at the end they'll sell them on a diet program but <laughs> by that point they've got them so riled up and they've tapped so well into that narrative in their head that it's 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 stunningly good copywriting it's stunningly good sales now you could argue it that one is somewhat manipulative i don't know that the programs are very good but man 
like the the degree to which it it really taps in that story is amazing. So that you know, those are some other examples. But I think people could more easily find the ones like Old Spice, Apple, um, or even you could look more subtly at things like Uber, which doesn't advertise well and obviously is facing a lot of PR nightmares at the moment. But they they really tap into their their customer pains and stories well. Um, in the small bit of advertising they do, but really in just the way that they structure everything within their business and the way that people interact with their business. And I think that's as, at least as important as the, the actual advertising and marketing. Jeremy, we're going to have to wrap up there, my friend. Right. Are there any final thoughts that you would like to tell the listeners before we end the show? Uh, no, no. I think I talked a, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I want to give you a huge thank you for coming on the show, Jeremy. Thank you for sharing your tips and your tricks and all your wisdom. We really appreciate it. I I really think the listeners are going to get a lot of value out of this. So thank you, my friend. Awesome. Thank you. And listeners, we're going to wrap up there. Thanks for joining us once again, and we'll see you all on the next episode. Goodbye, everybody. The Entrepreneur House is a business accelerator for six and seven figure entrepreneurs. Imagine spending an extended period of time with other successful entrepreneurs working together and growing your business. Day to day, you interact with other driven and smart business people. Spending an extended period of time around them alters your business and your mentality around business. Goals are set, business grows, new partnerships develop, greater profit margins are achieved, the productivity skyrockets for attendees, and you get to have an incredible adventure while doing it. This year, our main event will be held in Chiang Mai, Thailand. It is four weeks from October 26th to November 24th and held for six and seven figure entrepreneurs only. It will be full of workshops, masterminds, advisors, co-working, and fun weekend social events. Be sure to check out the details at theentrepreneurhouse.com as soon as possible. This event will fill up fast. For those of you that are interested and have some questions, be sure to contact us through theentrepreneurhouse.com forward slash contact. We will respond as soon as possible. For now, saludos from somewhere in the world.